good to celebrate together, right? The hope of the gospel should lead us to celebration. We should be getting silly with it out here. We should. You can dance here. You're welcome to dance. <laughs> Quick note before, um, before we enter into our text. Um, if, uh, tonight is the congregational meeting for all members, and if you can't make the meeting, at 5.45 is dessert, 6.30 starts the meeting. Uh, if you can't make the meeting tonight, please uh, fill out one of the absentee ballots uh, right out there in the, in the lobby on your way out. Um, so it's our annual meeting. Please, all members, come out if you can. There's a classic sermon that has circulated for quite some time now titled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Originally referring to Good Friday, meeting people in a place of gloom, brokenness, and sadness. But Sunday's coming, the preacher exclaimed over and over again. Easter Sunday is coming. Resurrection, redemption, restoration is coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming was the word of encouragement. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ that through the cross we are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Amen. Paul says in Ephesians 2. That's good news. Sunday is here. But Paul also says we are saved by grace through faith for good works. As we grow as a church, we pray that, that our growth would include becoming a people zealous for Christ-exalting good works. We want to be people who, we are, and be marked by a people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Recently, I heard another phrase that I like so much I titled my sermon it, It's Sunday. Monday's coming. This morning we're going to look at a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, where God sends his prophet to announce to God's people their sin and then tries to steer them toward righteousness. What Isaiah will show us is that Monday is the test for the authenticity of Sunday. The question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, the good news of the gospel that we proclaim on Sunday, does that good news line up with the demonstration of that gospel on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday through Saturday? Do we walk what we talk? Do we show what we share? Do our, does our behavior reflect our beliefs? This morning, we're going to distinguish between false worship and true worship in the eyes of God, and hopefully we examine our hearts individually and then collectively too, as a church, as one body. And then we will reinforce our understanding of how we become a people dedicated to true worship in view of God's mercy and grace. 
Say a word of prayer with me before we enter the word. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love which endures forever. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your patience with us. We thank you that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us and that we are yours, that you extend to us the free gift of salvation for free and that, and that through faith we are adopted in your family not based on what any merit that we have to offer you but solely based on your mercy that is so comforting, Father. As we hear your word today and we seek to be a people whose lives are so touched by the grace of God that our lives are poured out in service toward others, Father, we pray that your word that it would start right here in your living word that you, that you turn your text into life in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. And declare to my people their transgression and to the sin and to the house of Jacob their sins. What a way to start the morning, huh? God's calling Isaiah to take his stand as his mouthpiece to declare his message with a loud cry at the top of his lungs. Don't hold back on this one, Isaiah, God says. He's ready to convict his people, the house of Judah. Today, this message would land upon us as his people. What are they doing? What have they done? Verse 2, yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. As a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Wait a minute. They seek him daily. They delight to know his ways. They ask for just decisions and they delight in the nearness of God. The phrase, they seek me out, refers to worship. These people are eager to, to fulfill their worship observances. They, they fast, they pray, they tithe, they, they go to temple. Okay, so there's a conflict here, huh? These people are devoted in worship, and God calls it sin. Is he saying that there's a kind of God-centered worship that's sin? That's scary. The key word is in the center of this verse, as a nation, as if they were like a nation that did righteousness and did not neglect the ordinances, or in the original word, the, the justice of God. Big difference between being a people who seek God and being like 
a people who seek God. Big difference between being righteous and, as one scholar put it, role-playing righteousness. And the people know that something's off. Although they seek him out, God is not answering. There's, there's, there's an emptiness. Something is off. Look at verse 3. The people say, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not take notice? The term humbled ourselves literally means to afflict oneself. We'll get back to that in a bit. They fast and afflict themselves in sacrifice. They worship regularly. But why? Well, listen to them. They want God to see them. They want God to take notice of them. Hmm. Let's read on. God answers them. Verse, second part of verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bread? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day of the Lord? God says, I'll tell you why I don't pay attention to your noisy worship. That's a chilling Amos 5 reference. On the day of your fast, you seek your desires. You oppress your workers. The series of second-person plurals adds weight, adds force to the indictment. You, you, you. Zechariah 7, the parallel text here, God answers the same question from his people. He says, when you fast, you don't really fast for me, do you? You fast for yourselves. You seek your desires, Isaiah says. You see, God instituted that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one time a year, the people of God were required to fast. And by abstaining from pleasures, particularly food, they would, this would lead them, the purpose would be to, that this would lead them to exhibit humility before God in acknowledgement of his grace to demonstrate that they understood and believed the message of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, namely that they were saved by grace for the forgiveness of their sins. An acknowledgement of his grace was what he intended for, true worship. He called for an appropriate response to his grace. And what was an appropriate response? to the Lord's grace. Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. 
Micah, Amos, Isaiah, all the Old Testament prophets, they're just reinforcing the same message that flows out of the Torah. And that message, that message is the love of God is to be demonstrated in a love for others. God required all over the law that the fasts and feasts which were to be observed by his people were to be corporate events. They were to include, the, the people were to go out of their way to include the sojourners, that is, the refugees and the immigrants, the widows, the orphans, and the poor among them. God required from his people a tender heart and a special concern for the most vulnerable members in society, specifically those without provision and protection. The plight of the vulnerable was of no concern to Israel, though, so long as their personal gain accrued. They wanted profits. They wanted to milk their profits. They wanted, they wanted favor from the Lord. They wanted to be honored by other men. They wanted God to see them, to take notice of them. Jesus' words ring through here in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he says, do not be like those hypocrites who, who, who serve others and do their deeds of service and pray and fast on the corners and before others to be seen by men. Do not be like them. Do not pray like the pagans do, babbling on and on, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says. These people were approaching God not as an end in and of, itself, of himself, the chief end, but as a means to their end. These people wanted to manipulate God and into owing them. They wanted him to owe, owe them favor and credit. They wanted men to honor them. You do not fast like this to make your voice heard on high, the prophet says here. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. What God is saying here is, you say that you know me, but if you don't care about the needs of the poor and the oppressed, you don't really know me. You say that you care about me, but how do you care about me when you don't care about the things I care about? You don't care about the things I care about, you don't care about me. You care about me, you'll care about the things I care about. I care about the poor. I care about the marginalized. I care about the oppressed. I care about the, the, um, the underprivileged, the voiceless, the powerless. God stands with the vulnerable groups in society. That message is clear all through the scriptures. Proverbs 14.31, for example, says... He who oppresses the poor insults his maker, but he who is generous to the poor honors him. This isn't just a message in the Old Testament either. As I said, it runs through the scriptures. Remember what Jesus said on the last day in Matthew 25. I preached on it here once before. The criteria that he will use to judge us by on the last day, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
The righteous are confused. When did we do this to you, Jesus? Remember what he says? For I tell you that that which you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done also to me. God identifies with the poor and the marginalized. Let me ask you, family, if this issue of false worship existed among the people of God in the 8th century B.C., the 5th century B.C., and the 1st century A.D., do you think this is a relevant message for 21st century America, the church? Amen. I think so. Worship that doesn't produce a genuine care for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed isn't true worship. God says, it's vain. In vain do you worship me. As we move on here, watch the transition from verses 3 to 5 to 6 and 7 the Lord, as, as he goes from the Lord's emphasis on their one day, verse 3. Behold, on your one day, verse 4, today, verse 5, you think this is what I choose? One day? You call this day an acceptable day for the Lord? God now reinforces the, what true worship looks like in response to his grace. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? This is the fast I choose. Notice. Notice there's, there's no time frame here. There's no one particular day. He's presenting to us a lifestyle. He's saying, this is what ongoing worship looks like for the follower of God who has truly experienced my grace, who understands it. True worship, God says, includes having a special concern for social justice and a life poured out in deeds of service toward others and especially the poor. True worship is, is, is demonstrated in practical mercy. Social justice. Remember the indictment from verse 2 states, as if they were a people who upheld righteousness and justice, implying that's the standard. Righteousness is what they should be doing. Seeking justice is what they should be concerned with. And then right here in verses 6 and 7, he breaks it down for us. Doing justice must include then at least these things. So let's take a look. Look at verse 6. Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the bands of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. What's he talking about? Loose the bonds, undo the bands of the yoke, break the yoke. What's the yoke? Unjust social structures, oppressive systems, the yoke of oppression. Literally, a yoke is what, is what attaches oxen to one another as they plow the field. So the illustration is that of a, a structure that keeps one bound to oppression in which they need to be set free. These people need advocacy for freedom. 
They can't just break out themselves. Justice must include advocacy. Equal rights is one thing, but in the scriptures we see even more than equal rights. There are some people who require a special concern. Namely, the poor, the powerless, the voiceless. They don't have the same means of protection and provision that others do. We just looked at some of them. The refugees, the widows, the orphans, the poor. They need advocacy. People who will stand with them and help free them from the yoke of oppression. Clearly, this requires more than financial giving. This calls for personal commitment, advocacy. Look what he says. Undo the straps of the yoke. Yes, help set them free, but break the yoke. Undo the straps and break the yoke. The word for break here carries the sense of uprooting. Uproot the system. Destroy the unfair social structures. In other words, individual charity is, is great, but it's also not enough. We must seek to also change the structures. William Wilberforce is an example of what this looks like. Having earned power and prestige, working his way up into the British Parliament in the late 18th century, and soon after being transformed by the grace of the gospel, he stewarded his power, his position, and his privileges to help abolish the wicked European slave trade. This wasn't easy for him. It took 20 years of his life to defend this cause. He, along with others, including John Newton behind him, sought to not only set many slaves free, but to destroy the yoke of slavery to utterly uproot the system, and they did. Dr. Martin Luther King is another one who gave his life literally to carry on the work of, of freeing the oppressed and abolishing the oppressive racial system, which so many Americans wanted to hold so tightly onto. So many didn't want to let that go. Injustice Anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere he believed and spent his life fighting for the cause of racial justice and eventually brought about all sorts of social reform. What could this look like today for us? Where do you live? Why? Where do you send your children to school why? Have you seen the disparities in our school systems right here in Bucks County? What are you studying in college, students? Why? What priorities are shaping your vision? What is your vision in life? Parents, by what priorities are we guiding our children in the direction of their lives? Where do you work? Why? Where do you serve in the community, the region, or the world? Why do you serve? What's it all for? And more importantly, who is it for? The answer to these questions 
can change the world around us. Do you believe that? Advocacy. There's a world out there that needs us. Martin Luther said it well. He said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And yes, we need to consider the cost because it'll cost us something. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century revivalist and Puritan, wrote in his essay on Christian charity, which is based on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we read together this morning. He says, The Good Samaritan parable teaches us that loving our neighbors will be costly. He goes on to argue against the objection that people say, I just don't have anything to spare. He says, listen to this, if we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? How do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Loving our neighbor's costs. Look back at verse 7 with me. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? God says, you want to afflict yourself for me? You want to demonstrate gratitude? Take the abundance of food in your hand and in your cupboards and give it to those who need. Equitable distribution. And bring the homeless poor into your house. Hospitality. You want to demonstrate gratitude to me? Take the abundance of room in your homes and provide it for those who need it. When you see the naked, to cover him. Generosity. You want to demonstrate your gratitude to me? Take the abundance of clothing in your closets and give it to those who need it. Advocacy, equitable distribution, hospitality, generosity, and look at the end of verse 7. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. What's he talking about there? Flesh often refers to blood relative, family member. But is that all he's saying here? And don't forget your family. Look at the synonyms. The hungry, the homeless, the poor, the naked, your flesh. I think, yes, he's referring to, it consists of one's family, but extends far beyond one's family. I think what he's talking about here is humanity, mankind at large, all those of the same essence, of the same flesh. I think he's saying that we should feel the same responsibility for the poor, the naked, the hungry, the homeless stranger that we do for our own kindred. In other words, empathy, compassion, when we feel cold and hungry, when we feel abandoned or alone, we know what it feels like to be poor and to be vulnerable. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. 
Most commentators acknowledge that although this probably includes the body of Christ, the meaning here most likely extends beyond that to understanding the same limitations being of the same essence in the flesh as those in prison. It's tough. We know that it would be tough. And so the exhortation to remember them is more than just a call to mind. It's to identify with them, to sit with them in their affliction. I love that the prophet says here, do not hide yourself. The word hide carries the sense of ignoring. Do not ignore your own flesh. That could mean you know, you see them, they're everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live. You don't have to go far to witness the disparities and the injustices all around us. We cannot hide ourselves or ignore the fact that they exist and are calling for our attention and response. Family, how are we stewarding our resources and privileges to balance the scales of injustice and set the oppressed free spiritually and physically because God cares about both, our whole well-being. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City and author of a book I commend to you all, Generous Justice, gives an illustration to help us understand this better. He says, behind the biblical idea of justice is the rich concept of shalom. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word, hard to define in English, but we attempt to do so as comprehensive peace and prosperity, completeness, whole well-being. He illustrates that God created the world to be like a fabric with many threads interwoven together to work interdependently in beautiful harmony. The more interwoven the fabric of society is, the more productive, the more healthy, the stronger, the more beautiful it is. And when there are parts of the fabric that weaken and fray and break apart, the shalom of the fabric is unraveling. It's unbalanced. It needs to be repaired in certain places. You see where I'm going with this? When people have resources and invest them greatly in the community, the community grows stronger. But when people hoard and take and take and take, and the frayed and weakened parts of of the fabric of society begin to, they they continue to break down even more. And what happens? The shalom of the community unravels. It breaks apart. Justice then... Keller suggests, means to go to where the fabric in society is breaking down and to invest all the threads of your life there through many investments and involvements. That's doing justice. And family, this is biblical. Shalom is what we are currently oriented toward 
when Christ comes back and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom has already come, but is not yet fully here. And until then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are agents of reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself and to others. God making his appeal to the world through us. Through us. This is why we do what we do in regards to outreach at Riverstone. This is why we send missionaries like Paul and his family to to advance the gospel in some of the most unreached and difficult places in the world. From right here to the ends of the earth. This is why we're investing in the Middle East. I stood in the Bekaa Valley on the border of Lebanon and Syria, home to over 750,000 Syrian refugees. You should have heard the hellacious exploitations and injustices that are being done to the women and children in that valley right now as we speak. It is gut-wrenching. These people are so vulnerable. They have nothing, no protection, no provision. That's why we're investing in the kingdom alongside our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, among refugees, widows, and orphans, advancing the gospel there. Choice one, you know we are, we are, we are involved and committed to a local, local ministry here. You may have seen baby bottles on your way in. I encourage you all, take a baby bottle and fill it up on your way out as just one of the means that, that, that we fight alongside um, choice one to protect the cause of the unborn and the vulnerable mothers. This is, talk about being a voice for the voiceless, literally. Kingdom Builders, a ministry that we have here that, 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 that's designed to meet the, the, the needs of our family in-house and also in the community around us. Our Trenton Initiative, seeking to be part of kingdom renewal one community at a time. Attempting to restore that which has been stripped from the city slowly but surely over the last many decades in all spheres of society. Too many neighborhoods are suffocating from oppression and injustices. We want to weave ourselves into the fabric. And new this year, you may have seen on your bulletin, um, as you arrived, we're launching this fall a prison ministry right here in Bucks County. We plan to work with Life Abundant Ministry at Bucks County Correctional Facility to reach the incarcerated with the hope of the gospel and walk with them as they transition out into a new life in Christ on a new, on a new foundation with a new motive, a new hope. This is exciting. Join us in this. There's more information online and in the bulletins. Family, we want to be a church that is dedicated to offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God in true worship. And so the question is, how do we become a people who have been so touched by the grace of God that our lives are poured out in deeds of service toward others and practical mercy to the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed? Answer, service begets service. Grace begets grace. Mercy begets mercy. Love begets love. Jesus Christ came into the world not to be served, but to first serve. 
and give his life as a ransom for many. Nobody was more terribly abused, nobody more oppressed, nobody more victimized unjustly than Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus, who deserved vindication and justice, received our condemnation and the injustices of our sin so that we can receive his righteousness. Amen? He became poor that through his poverty we would become rich in the blessings of God. John Stott said, I could never believe in God without the cross. In a world of such injustices, how could I believe in a God who was immune to it? Our God subjected himself to injustice for our sake. Only an understanding of God's grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ can compel a life poured out in deeds of service to the poor and to our neighbors. Poured out, no strings attached. When you come to an understanding of the justice of God executed for you on the cross, you cannot help but to follow in the steps of our king, administering justice to all. What we're going to see now in closing are the promises of God when we, de when we demonstrate the sincerity of our faith according to God's desires. Let's read verses 8 through 12. Then, pause, if you acknowledge my, and receive my grace and live your life poured out in deeds of service toward others and especially the poor, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your mist and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and Satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters don't, do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to, to dwell. Christian, amen. Christian, do you feel gloomy? Do you feel dry, worn out? Is something missing? God says, then give yourself to the poor. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. It's unfortunate where the English can bring out the Hebrew, the Hebrew parallels and translators choose not to. I want to show you something because it's so good. Look at verse 10. If you give your soul, the original word, not just money, if you give your soul to, to the hungry and satisfy the soul of the afflicted, verse 11, the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your soul in scorched places. You see that? You give your soul to satisfy the souls and, you will be sat and your soul will be satisfied to which I add by the soul maker and soul satisfier. Your light will break forth like the dawn. 
There will be healing and replenishment to your bones. He'll go before you and behind you. And when you call and, and when crisis strikes, here I am. Crisis strikes, God, right here. I'm right here with you. Haven't left. Just to clarify one thing, we don't earn the breaking of the dawn. It was purchased for us on the cross. As one scholar said, don't receive these if-then statements as legalistic, like if you do this, then God does this. Receive it as if orders from the great physician, doctor's orders. When we follow the doctor's prescription of how to live our lives, the remedy produces strength, refreshment, satisfaction, and his presence at all times. You will be like a watered garden. The blessing and joy of your salvation will drench you like a watered garden. And that's not all. You will be a spring. Notice that. The water comes in and the water pours out. You will be a spring of living water, of joy. You will be a fountain of joy, waters that never fail. Christians, we were built to be rivers, not reservoirs. Jesus says, those who believe in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. A trusting relationship with Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 58. It is how we become springs of living water that never fail. Blessings come to us that they might flow through us. It's always been like that since the call of Abraham. I will bless you so that you would be a blessing. The light of the living Christ that breaks forth through us is intended to reach those around us. Let your light so shine before others that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And as we live our lives as rivers of blessing, saturated in the joy of the Lord. Verse 12, we will be known as a people who seek the shalom of the world around us, as a church who seeks to restore the fabric of society. Let Christ be magnified through our church, and it starts with you in your home and us in our home and flows out to the community around us. It's Sunday, family. Monday's coming. Let us now move out with lives that reflect the grace we cling to today. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us. Father, we... Thank you that you have called us into your family through faith in Christ. And we thank you that not only have you called us in, but you have sent us out. I pray that we be a church that, 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 that truly understands that we are all sent ones. As Christ was sent in the world, so he sends us. I pray that we would acknowledge and truly realize that all our resources, all that we have, our, our places of, of, of residency and our work and our schools, that, those, that that's our ministry field. 
Let us maximize the world around us for your great namesake, Father. We pray that your grace would would overflow in us, fill us with your spirit, and let us move out into the world as bold as lions, seeking to repair the breaches and bring the hope of the gospel to others in word and deed, all to the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.